0: All right, so we're back in 2 Kings, and I actually skipped over a really short story uh, that I want to kind of use, which is the actual intro to this story in the Bible as my introduction this morning. It's an interesting story about some sons of the prophets, you find it in verse 7, and they are, um, they're, they're expanding uh, their land, there's not enough room for them in the town that they're in, and it's a story that's probably been told a million times in the history of the world People, there's not enough land, they need to expand, and so they go out, and they need to build a new home. In the process of that, uh, they're building by the Jordan River, and they're felling trees, and they, one of the guys had borrowed an axe head from someone else, and in the story, apparently, as he's swinging the axe back, the axe head falls off, and it falls into the river, and um, it's one of these stories in the Bible where you're like, Okay, why is this story in the Bible? So is walking by, sees what's happened, and miraculously the axe head floats. They pick it up, screw the axe head back on, and continue working. And it's one of those stories where you're like, why did God put this in the Bible? It just seems so isolated, such an unusually uh, small and, and uh, not uh, monumental event, a mundane event that is, is happening in this person's life. And yet, then the next story goes on, and Elisha works uh, an incredible miracle in a very important monumental moment in Israel's history. I think what we take away from this is, is simply this, is that God's miracles, the miracles that he works in our lives through his word, happen in all kinds of moments. Most of our lives are lived in the mundane. They're lived in just normal days that, that are live somewhere between success and failure, frustration, and, and feeling like everything is kind of going okay. And in those moments, God is present with his people. These sons of the prophets, they are some of the few people who are still following Yahweh at this time. And God sees this man and his ax head and works in this very mundane and isolated kind of event just for this person, I find that very comforting in my life because there's a lot of times in my life that are lived with one of my kids having a test coming up that's stressing them out. Uh, It's lived in a moment like I'm living in right now where we had water damage in our house and it's annoying and we have to move out of our house for two weeks and um, is that a a monumental moment? No, it's annoying, Uh, but but I'm glad that God is at work in a moment like that when you're going through the family finances and you're recognizing that uh, there's a lot of month left at the end of the money. Uh, God is present in moments like that, and He's present in moments like we see right now happening worldwide as Adam prayed about a lot of these events that are happening. He's present where 1.9 billion people who are Muslims are setting aside time to pray during Ramadan. He's present in the war with Ukraine and Russia. He's present for the millions of Chinese people who are being persecuted right now for His faith. He's present in all of those moments. God is present for us. He is active and living with us as his people in both the monumental and in the mundane. The challenge for us is that we have a hard time seeing it. We have a hard time in our regular lives when the finances are tight, when you're, you can't live in your house, when you have a test coming up, when uh, you're feeling anxious or depressed and you're not sure why, or when you have some huge thing going on, a, a choice about college. Which college are you going to go to? A choice about a new job. Should we move? All of these huge things. We have a hard time seeing what the Lord is doing. We have a hard time living with spiritual vision. And so in this story, what we find is is a commentary for us on how to live with new spiritual eyes. And so in the first section, we're going to see what it looks like to live with natural eyes. In the second section, we're going to look at what it looks like to see with spiritual eyes. And in the third section, we're going to put it all together and ask the question, how does living with spiritual vision, seeing the Lord in the midst of the mundane and the monumental, change the way that we interact with the world Around us. What does it look like when the blind can see? So, first of all, seeing with natural eyes. That's verses 8 through 15. So the king of Syria, he is a perennial adversary of Israel, and he is once again trying to make war on Israel. But he finds himself extremely frustrated because Elisha knows what he's saying, and as soon as he wants to go make camp somewhere to make war on Israel, Israel moves their intended position and it's driving him crazy, and he thinks there's a spy in his own camp. We're going to look, first of all, from the standpoint of the king of Syria. What does it look like to see things from a natural perspective and to live out of that natural vision, that limited natural perspective? For the king of Syria, the first thing we see in him is there is plotting and unending attempts to control, plotting and unending attempts to control. Control. So he spends time, what does he do? He spends time assessing with his advisors what should we do? How should we make war? How should we go down? But every time he makes a plan, the location changes. But let's stop here for a second. How often, when you're navigating life, do you spend your time in an unending fashion just contemplating what is happening, trying to make plans, trying to be proactive? trying with your own wisdom and your own resources to come up with solutions. How do you respond when there's progress you want to make in a certain area of life? Maybe it's with a child who's struggling with something. Maybe it's something in your job. Maybe it's something with a relationship. And you're seeing with natural eyes, and so you spend about 99.9% of your time plotting, what do I need to do next? How do I attempt to gain control of this situation and you spend about 0.1% of your time seeking the Lord and in prayer. I often fall into that trap. I am, a, I am a person who is logical, rational, have a lot of energy. And I think that if I just have enough wisdom, maybe I include a bunch of counselors, maybe we can gain control of the situation instead of going to the Lord first. I was in a meeting, a strategy meeting about what's going on in China about six months ago. And we were looking at the kind of the current reality of what's happening with the church. And then we spent a lot of time as leaders thinking about what to do about it. And after the meeting, I just struck up a conversation. Uh, it was in Chinese, which my Chinese is not uh, like my English. It's, it's a bit limited. So I was having a conversation with this lady. Her name is Wen Jie. She leads our prayer ministry in China. And after the meeting, I just made a comment to her and said, gosh, after that presentation, we have a lot to think about and consider, don't we? And she smiled at me, and in Chinese, she said back to me, yes, we do have a lot to pray about, don't we? And she wasn't being snide in her comments. She was just lovingly telling me, what do you think we're going to do about this in a strategic planning meeting? How are we going to change what's happening in this meeting? It's not to downplay strategy and, and, and effort in that way. It's to say, at what point do we depend on the greatness of our God in impossible situations? So the first thing we see in the king of Syria is this plotting and unending attempts at control. The second thing we see is suspicion and incorrect conclusions about what is happening. Suspicion and incorrect conclusions about what is happening. So the king of Syria, after, after considering what's going on, he believes there must be a spy in my ranks. What other logical explanation is there? that I would be moving in a certain direction and Israel would move in another direction. There must be a spy. Now, the king of Syria is probably a smart man. He probably has counselors around him. He is being very logical, rational. And if you analyze the situation, actually, the most logical explanation to come up with is that there is a spy. But in his logic and in his reason and his rationale and his, in his attempts to try to understand the situation— he is actually completely and totally wrong. Even though it makes complete sense to him, he's actually completely off in his conclusion that he draws here. And imagine the implications of him reaching this wrong conclusion with his logic. You know he searched the ranks, he looked for the spy, they probably framed someone just so that he could feel better about himself, Somebody probably died because the king really thought he was right in this situation. It reminds me of a story, uh, one of the most famous stories in in our uh, most recent history as people, Pride and Prejudice. Uh, There's a main character there, Elizabeth Bennett. She's an example for us of this. So, So Elizabeth, she has this really a superpower. She has an incredible knack at understanding people and so she spends a lot of time thinking about people and how to understand people and how they relate to one another. And she's normally, in most cases, 99% of the time, right. She's very good at understanding people. But in one particular case, there's a guy named Mr. Darcy. And uh, she, as she kind of looks at Mr. Darcy, she believes that Mr. Darcy's actually the source of her family's greatest problems, as she considers things rationally and looks at how all the people are working together, all the circumstances, this superpower that she has, so to speak, actually becomes her greatest liability. And so she misunderstands Mr. Darcy because of her pride and prejudice. Mr. Darcy also doesn't understand her, and they keep on misunderstanding each other. Eventually, it all works out in the end, but there's a lot of hurt that goes on because they trust so deeply And their own ability to understand not just situations, but people and how people relate to one another. We often make the same mistake. Many people uh, in our church are wonderful relationally. Uh, You actually have a great ability to, to love other people well. But we can misuse that ability by taking it too far and believing that whatever we come up with in our own minds is actually accurate about what's going on with other people. When in the end, you might find out, as I have many times, and I'm sure you have too, that all of our attempts to understand and consider and rationalize, we actually missed, and we missed greatly, and it hurt people in the process. And so we can do this in our own lives, too. How can we prevent this way of locked-in reasoning? How can we combat our pride and prejudice? Well, we can invite others in to provide godly counsel. I love this proverb. Proverb 18.17, the one who states his case first first seems right until the other comes in and examines him. Yeah, you need to have somebody that you can talk to that's actually a good friend that can, if if, if you're actually potentially a little bit off, they're not just affirming everything that you say, they can actually speak in to your life. And I wonder for us, how many of us have a relationship with God like this? where our relationship with God is all about him affirming us, him affirming our point of view so that we will feel better about where we are rather than having the kind of relationship with God where we're coming before him and saying, God, examine me, teach me, show me where I'm off, show me how to see with new spiritual eyes in this situation and correct my pride and my prejudice. The third thing we see in the king of Syria is frustration and desperate displays of power to win. Frustration and displays of power to win. So in the end, the king of Syria, uh, he, he knows and is told that the reason for this happening is not because there's a spy. It is because Elisha, the prophet of God, can listen to everything that you're thinking and saying because God is on his side. And instead of that leading him to repentance, Instead of that leading him to give up and relent, it actually infuriates him and frustrates him so that he works even harder to win. It's so interesting that sometimes when our sin is revealed to us, instead of repenting, we actually work harder against it and try to overcome it in our own effort as if we could do that. Rather than in humility turning to the Lord, we double down on our attempts at self-centeredness and power-grabbing. Now, when I'm reading this story, there are definite correlations and applications we can make to people like Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping. I'm actually going to do that a little bit later. But instead of just thinking about kings and geopolitics, I want you to think about yourself. I want you to think about how you might do this in your own life. When you're troubled in heart, when God reveals something to you, how do you respond to the Lord? How do we respond here at Trinity park. Maybe you and I are more like the king of Syria than we would like to think that we are in the way that we uh, engage with the world around us. Attempt to control with our pride and prejudice. Try to read people, read situations, get too settled in our own, own opinion, not willing to be corrected. We need to see with new spiritual eyes. So this gets to verses 16 and 17. The second this morning is seeing with spiritual eyes, seeing with spiritual eyes. This is the part of the story I most often think about, if I think about this story. Um, I often find myself praying, Lord, I know there are things that I just don't understand. There's just, just elements of what's happening here that I, that I can't see. Lord, would you help me to see like you see? This is such a beautiful part of the story. So the servant of Elisha here is presumably Gehazi, because he's not otherwise named. Most commentators say that if there was a new servant, then he would have been named for us and told us that he was a new servant. But this is probably Gehazi, and if it is Gehazi, we'll go back to last week. If you remember what happened last week with Gehazi, is after Naaman was healed of leprosy in the Jordan River, Gehazi had a moment where he was tempted and he went behind Naaman, and he said, hey, you know what, Naaman, I actually... Uh, I know you brought some money to pay Elisha for his services, and Elisha said that grace was free, and it is free, but I would like some of your money anyway because you have a lot of it and I don't have very much. And so Naaman graciously gives him some money, and in the process of that, Elisha obviously finds out, and Elisha then goes to Gehazi and says, you know what's going to happen? God has told me that you and your family are going to be cursed with leprosy forever, That's how the last chapter ended, and so we leave with this this moment in Gehazi's life that is is just absolutely terrible, but it looks like from the story that God hasn't given up on Gehazi yet. In fact, it looks like that because of Gehazi's failure and his failure to understand grace and the consequences of his sin, that God is actually moving toward Gehazi, perhaps even more, because maybe Gehazi really understands now. Maybe he has a shot at understanding now that he is not going to be saved by merit, by payment, but he's going to be saved only by the grace of God. And so Gehazi is there in this moment where the king of Syria sends all of his troops to Dothan. It's this area of Israel where they are at that point. He sends his troops to Dothan and they're encamped around Elisha. Gehazi wakes up in the morning. Walks out and sees all of these troops of Syria, massive armies surrounding all of them, sent to take Elisha in. And in verse 15, he is only seeing things with natural eyes. He wakes up one morning. Imagine it: you walk out your front door and you see that your whole cul-de-sac, neighborhood, street, whatever your apartment community is surrounded by an army, and he freaks out and. I don't blame him. I think I would freak out too if I found myself suddenly in that situation. But he completely loses his spiritual vision. He forgets that he's with, for a moment, he forgets that he's with Elisha. But then he has a moment where he turns to the master. This is the first thing that we should do when we start freaking out. We turn to the master. Instead of him putting hope in his own strength, how could we? When we're confronted with an adversary like this, he turns to his master, Elisha, and he says, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Very basically, Gehazi is an awesome mentor for us here. We need to learn to frequently, not just when it feels like all the armies of the world are surrounding us, but frequently be turning to the Lord and asking the Lord, what shall we do? And then We find the next part here is divine power in our anxieties. Elisha begins with the Gehazi, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Now, who else often begins his counsel this way for people who are afraid? Well, it's Jesus. As we walk through the Gospels, as people come to him consistently, they're coming to him and they're overwhelmed with life. One of the first things that Jesus says to them is don't be afraid before he works miracle. Don't be afraid. I am here, Jesus says. And the takeaway after Jesus performs whatever miracle that he's about to perform, whether it's feeding 5,000 people or raising Lazarus from the dead, our first takeaway when we have a miracle that happens in our life or we see a miracle in the Bible and we're kind of walking through it in the story with the people is our first takeaway is no way he fed 5,000 people or no way that's incredible. Lazarus was raised from the dead, but the real takeaway that Jesus wants for us is I am greater, I am sufficient, I am able in every circumstance that you face, and that's why you don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be afraid because I am here. The takeaway isn't the food or the resurrected man. The takeaway is Jesus. The takeaway is God is greater than any anxiety-producing situation. That we face. Notice that the opening of the eyes comes through prayer. I don't want to skip over this. Elisha prays. Also, Jesus prays to his father. Even though he's united with his father perfectly, he still prays to his father. That, that God is the one who works in this situation. It's not Elisha. Elisha doesn't do anything. Elisha's power comes from God. Jesus even surrenders himself to his Father and says, Father, bless this meal. Raise this person from the dead. Jesus depends on his Father as well. And we need to turn to the Lord in prayer. Oftentimes our prayer, I remember uh, one of my favorite books on prayer is called A Praying Life by Paul Miller. It's an awesome book. Most books on prayer make me feel really bad about myself. This book actually is kind of encouraging, uh, and so I recommend it to you. But one of the prayers that he talks about, is he calls it a catapult prayer. It's like there's this wall blocking us, and we know that it is, and we don't know what to do. And in a catapult, what you do is you put whatever the thing is on it so it can hoist it over a wall. And sometimes we just feel like that wall is there, and sometimes prayer is just saying, God, here you go, and we just catapult it to the Lord and trust Him with it. And I love that. I love that because that's what I feel like so many times. Lord, I don't know what to do, so here, boom, and I just give you that prayer. And in... This case, the Lord answers in an incredible way by Elisha saying, Lord, would you show Gehazi what I can see? Would you show him how I can see what's going on here? And the Lord gives Gehazi the spiritual vision where he now sees the armies of the Lord engulfing so much greater than the armies of Syria. We don't know the ratio of God's armies to Syria's armies, it just says the word more. But based on Gehazi's response, we know that it's much more, much greater. And notice also it talks about the chariots of fire that are surrounding uh, them at this point. Now, I'd never noticed this until I was studying it this week. But I thought there was, I don't know, I just thought there was only one chariot of fire in the Bible, the one that took Elijah to heaven. But apparently God has an entire, you know, arsenal of chariots of fire. He has so many chariots of fire in his army that there's just one that took Elijah to heaven. God has so many resources at his his disposal for us so that we can trust in him. The story reminds me of the Psalm 34 7 that says, the angel of the Lord camps around those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. So in the midst of whatever we're facing, we feel surrounded. The Lord encamps around us. For those who trust in him, the Lord has us and is protecting us. So the goal of this this passage is to lead us to verse 16. I love this beautiful verse where it says, those who are with us are more than those who are against us or more than those who are with them. The reality is, if we could see how great God is, and if we could see the angelic forces at work on our behalf, if we could see the world through the narrative that Elisha was seeing through, and the narrative that Jesus is seeing through, the narrative that God is seeing through, we would often have a very different response to the challenges that we face in life. When you're discouraged, when you're discouraged and, and many of us are, I've been discouraged at different times this week. We have to learn to preach the gospel to ourselves. Each one of us has internal, has an internal dialogue that's going on. We're, we're constantly thinking. We're constantly mulling over what is true and what should I do. And in the midst of that, you need an internal preacher, okay? Someone much better than me. Maybe Jesus would be better than me, okay? You need to listen to the voice of Jesus who is speaking to you. And you, we need to be constantly aligning our hearts to the gospel of grace. Constantly ask God, Lord, help me see the world through spiritual eyes rather than just through physical eyes. Help me to see how much you are for me and not against me. Because the ultimate story and the ultimate power is not going back to 2 Kings 6 and and thinking about all the armies of heaven. The ultimate story is what Jesus has already accomplished for you on the cross. If you want to preach the gospel to yourself, preach the gospel of In Adam all die, but in Christ all are made alive. Preach the gospel to yourself that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because Jesus has already paid for your sins. In moments in life when you're really aware of your sin, you are are just blown away by the grace of God. Think about the sin of the world. Think about all the sins that were laid on Jesus Christ on the cross. Think about what Christ has done to atone for sin. The merit of his blood is is just unfathomable, and it, it tells us that our last sin is paid for, our last weakness is redeemed, and the last demon that taunts you has to flee. The resurrection of Christ speaks so loudly in history, so loudly in the reality of the spiritual realms, that Satan knows he is defeated. It speaks so loudly. Again, I got some mail this week from Paul Miller Uh, see Jesus Ministries, where he says, in spiritual warfare, you can relax. My first response to that was like, what? But actually, if Jesus is that powerful, if the resurrection is that powerful, yes, you need to be vigilant to preach the gospel to yourself. But at the end of the day, Jesus has won. The resurrection is true. He has already paid for sin and been raised from the grave. So we need to see with new spiritual eyes, according to to the gospel of grace. And then third and finally, how our sight or our lens influences our actions. We find this in verses 18 through 23. So the reality is that whatever you believe to be most true about the world and about yourself will impact how you live. I just walked the youth through this, an exercise that that taught this last week, We talked about a high school, a typical high school student who's not a Christian. And all of the the beliefs they have about who they need to be, the idols that that they end up having about being popular, being noticed, being beautiful, being smart, needing to be this, needing to be that. So if you believe that is who you are, then it impacts the way that a high school student would live, right? If you believe that is the sum total of reality then you're going to live in a certain way out of that reality. But for us in Christ, when we have Christ, we have some of those idols in our lives too, right? But we also have Christ influencing us, working in us, telling us there's, there's a different story to believe. There's a greater story to behold. The cross, the resurrection, that we're being redeemed. If my lens tells me that God loves me and is more powerful than any adversary I can face, it will change the way that I live. If my lens tells me that it's really all up to me, Jesus has done a little bit, but now it's up to me to finish the fight, that will change the way that I live. If I believe that Jesus hasn't done very much at all, that actually only some of my sins are paid for, and I have to pay for some of the other ones by living a good life, it will change the way that I live. If we believe that the gospel is true, that Christ has won the battle, that the resurrection means that we are redeemed, that every weakness will be redeemed, then we will live a different way. The truth is, though, we as Christians all fluctuate between these two lenses of Gehazi in verse 15 and Gehazi in verse 16. We do. We're always fluctuating back and forth. But our prayer would be that we would live more frequently over time in, in verse 16 than in verse 15. Less frequently freaked out about all of the things that are going on in the world, more frequently believing that God loves us and has a plan for us and has redeemed us. Here's some words you can put into your internal preach the gospel to yourself narrative, okay? Romans 8.31. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but graciously gave him up for us all, will he not along with him graciously give us all things? You should memorize that verse. You should know Romans 8.31. Psalm 34.7, I've already mentioned this verse. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. 2 Kings 6.16, do not be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with them, Oh Lord, open our eyes that we may see. This is for every Christian. Every Christian, if you've just started following Christ, you need to learn that you can see with natural eyes or you can see with spiritual eyes. If you've been walking with Christ for a long time, you're not done yet. The proclivity is to fall back into verse 15 and to not live in verse 16. Even this morning, I received an email from, it was a foreword from an elder of Early Rain Church they're currently facing a fresh round of, of persecution as a church. So, it's almost the 5-year anniversary of Wang Yi being imprisoned in prison and the initial outbreak of persecution. He wrote this. Persecution is like the tide which rises and falls. When the water level rises, the greatest difficulty does not lie in the external situation but in us. Whether we respond in faith and in the gospel Whether we stand firm on the foundation of grace, whether we treat each other with kindness, accept each other, tolerate each other, and support each other, so that our persecutors will see the grace and truth of Christ in us is very difficult to overcome. This is the lesson the Lord has given us. For everyone who faces any type of trial in this world, whether it's persecution or something else, we have a choice. The, the greatest threat is not outside of us, it is in us. Will we believe? Will we trust? Notice in the story that God controls sight in both directions. In the first part, Gehazi is blinded and God open, opens his eyes. And then two verses later, in verse 18, Elisha prays that God would blind the eyes of these, these armies that have surrounded them. And then in this like funny little we're supposed to kind of laugh at this moment where he kind of leads this entire army who's all of a sudden blinded. He leads them all the way to the king of Israel. All the way. God controls sight in both directions. He opens up the, bl- the eyes of the blind and he makes those who feel like they can see also not be able to see at times. It's in the Lord's purview. God controls sight in both directions. You know, right now, if you are a... Ukrainian, Christian, and you're living through what they're living through, um, it would be tempting to believe that God is not in control of the situation. I received a, a video that was sent to me. It was taken on the night of New Year's Eve. One of our missionaries, Wade Kuzak, uh, was over there on New Year's Eve, and it was this one-minute clip of a, an underground church worshiping in a basement somewhere in Kiev, and they're singing, and they're bringing in the New Year with worship, And then he walks, about 10 seconds, he walks out the door, walks up some stairs outside, and the sirens are going off and the bombs are falling, not right where they are, but around the vicinity of Kiev. This is the fight that we have. The fight that we have, if you're a Ukrainian, is to believe that actually um, the whole point, the whole sum total of what is going on right now is whether or not we can win this war physically by our fighting. And if you are a Ukrainian... You should, if, even if you're a Christian, you should fight. You, you fight this war. You have to fight against evil. We have to push back evil. But what this group, this, these Christians are showing us is that ultimately who they're trusting in is not in whether or not their armies can overcome Putin. Ultimately, they're trusting in the Lord. It's the Lord who causes victory. It's the Lord who opens eyes. It's the Lord, even in these type of battles, that causes um, success. And so the, even these Christians show us this moment that even in this moment of where there's this hateful, narcissistic land grab happening by Putin, as Christians, they're not, they're, they're focused on, yes, the armies, but they're focused on the Lord because the Lord is the one who's ultimately in control of the situation. And the final thing that we see in this passage is we see uh, an, an amazing uh, conclusion, grace For those who are captive to evil, grace and provision rather than judgment for those who are captive to evil. So in this entire interlude, it's just building to this point where now suddenly the king of Israel has this massive Syrian army in front of him who have just been unblinded so that they can see. And he's pictured again kind of in a funny way for us, like a giddy little child saying to Elisha, should I strike them down now? Should I strike them down like he doesn't know what to do with himself. And in this moment, Elisha gives us a picture of the heart of God. And he says, basically, would you kill those people that God has brought to you by himself? Would you even kill a prisoner of war that you had taken for yourself? That is not how our God works. This is not how God treats his enemies. How does God respond to those who are captive to evil, who are blind But cannot see. Elisha says, feed them, give them drink, set a feast before them, and send them back to their master. How does God treat his enemies? How does he treat those who are blind to his grace? How did he treat you when you were blinded to his grace? I've got to admit that I've had these moments where I, if I ever had Vladimir Putin or Xi Jinping in front of me, you know, I've thought about how I, would, how I would treat him in that situation. Amazingly, God would treat them differently than I would. Romans 5.10. How did God treat us before we knew his grace? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. When we were enemies of God, God loved us. And he sent his son for us, not when we had already changed or had some good in us, but while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God could have decided in his wrath to be done with us, but thanks be to God, that's not how he treats the spiritually blind. That's not how he treats his enemies. How did he give us that banquet? How did he give us food and drink? It's not just theoretical. He sent his own son. He sent Jesus Christ to be the feast. He sent his own son to be the food and the drink, to be the banquet of grace for us. He actually sent Christ when we were enemies and said, this is my son, I give him for you to feast on him so that you can have life in me. He gives us grace even though we didn't deserve it. Romans 5, 7 through 8, For one would scarcely die for a righteous person, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And so for all of us who are quick to be like the king of Israel in this story, we started out seeing how we can be like the king of Syria, then we saw how we can be like Gehazi, and now we're seeing how we can be like the king of Israel, quick to rush into judgment, quick to run into pride and prejudice, quick to holding people accountable for all of the things that they've done wrong. God smacks us in the face with his grace and his mercy, and he says, that's not how I treat my enemies. It's not how I treated you. Now, how should this gospel of grace change us? How should we be changed? We should be slower to rush into judgment, quicker to give mercy, quicker to forgive. If we, when we were enemies of God, God said, I'm not going to give you punishment and judgment, I'm going to give you grace. In fact, I'm going to give you my very own son. How much more can we give grace to those who need it? But the only way that we can possibly ever be transformed in this way, because our natural bent, our flesh, the Bible calls it, is so prone toward judgment and so prone toward pride and prejudice, the only way for us to grow here is to regularly be encountering the gospel of grace, a God who is so different than us. As we can see him, as we can see him on the cross and at the empty tomb, we can be changed to love our enemies in ways that that really show, as the Chengdu elder, the elder of early reign showed us, that the grace that is in us, even when we are being persecuted, even when life is hard, is very difficult for the world to deal with because it comes from the Lord who is greater than any reality that we can face. May we follow him, may we learn to see through this lens of the gospel, this God who gave himself up for us and who promises to graciously give us all things. Let's pray. Lord, we're so humbled by the grace and the love that you've shown us. We're so quick to... Power up and believe that we're right, and to build a whole narrative based on that, and to to act out of that, Lord. But we are humbled by a God who loves us, who meets us in all of our sin, who dies for us, who loves us, who pays for it, so that we can have life. Lord, we want to see the world like you see the world. We want to, as those who have uh, had our eyes open to your grace, we want to live in accordance with your grace. And so I just pray that we would, Lord. The reality is, Lord, if we um, were in control of the world, we wouldn't know what to do <laughs> um, with so many situations, uh, including uh, people like Putin and Xi and uh, and so many other um, realities that are happening in this world. And so even as the thunderstorm came through earlier during my sermon, Lord, we're just humbled underneath your your sovereignty, and we recognize, God, that, that you are far greater than we are. And so we ask that you would continue to remind us of not just your sovereignty, but your, your protective power over us and your grace for us in the midst of our greatest moments of need. Father, we thank you for the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.